Hey, it's Sarah, reminding you to check out the Mina Kimes Show featuring Lenny. This week, Mina's NFL divisional previews continue with the AFC East and the incredibly intelligent Cynthia Freeland. You can find the Mina Kimes Show featuring Lenny wherever you get your podcasts. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. Well, that's what she said. Welcome to That's What She Said, conversations with interesting people from the world of sports, music, comedy, and more, talking about their lives, careers, successes, and failures. Hi, I'm Heidi Gardner, and my dilemma is I'm waking up a lot in the middle of the night. I'm getting bad sleep. Oh, man. Here's the thing. Uh, Heidi, we recorded this like even before all of the current civil unrest and the uh, progress for the Black Lives Matter movement, which has only added another layer of like racing thoughts and images and ideas through your head as you try to sleep. So I cannot imagine that this has gotten any better since we talked. Um, the best I can tell you is a couple of little tips that I have, which is to make sure that the last thing that I'm consuming right before bed is something light. So not looking on my phone, not reading the news, not watching videos of protests, not, you know, listening to firsthand accounts of people who have been wronged or even people advocating for the right things. It's just too much. Then it races through my head. So a book that's totally unrelated um, would be a good thing to have by your bedside and always finish the night with that, something that you're really into. Also, I'm big on uh, melatonin. Just the one pill usually does it for me. I do have a little bit of weird dreams, but I at least stay asleep the whole night, knocked out. So consider a very light sleeping pill. And then the other thing I do is right before bed, as I'm lying there trying to fall asleep, I'm worried about my brain wandering to all the terrible things going on. And so instead, I start by telling myself a story. Either I have a memory of a great vacation I went on or something that I did, or I just talk to myself in my head about some story and hope that as I fall asleep, that's what goes through my head and where my psyche is instead of all the other stuff. So I don't know if it'll help with your current issues, but uh, hopefully you could try those and see if it'll help just a little bit. It seems to be a dilemma for a lot of people coming on the show lately. Um, none of us are getting good sleep. The commish has spoken. <laughs> Heidi Gardner is a cast member on Saturday Night Live and the voice of Cooch the Cat on the Crackle series Super Mansion. She can also be seen in Life of the Party with Melissa McCarthy, the movie, and also on recent episodes of Crank Yankers and Superstore. We had a lot of fun talking. It was uh, a week or two before uh, George Floyd's murder and the results therein, so uh, we didn't get into that stuff, uh, but rest assured – uh, we would have uh, talked about that had had it had it occurred. Um, we did talk about her being a big Kansas City sports fan, the benefits of attending an all girls school, but how it affected her attempts to meet men uh, or boys at the time, which included wearing an Anthony Hardaway jersey and a turtleneck and some dog tags to the mall and striking out. Um, her jobs at Steak and Shake and the movie theater, her lack of motivation at college, couple colleges, and how shame ended up driving her to move to L.A. to be a hairdresser, where she serendipitously came upon improv comedy and just snapped her fingers and felt like a near overnight success when she started with the Groundlings. How landing the SNL gig and moving to New York in two days flat, leaving her husband behind in L.A. was, quote, the coolest trauma ever, how they're dealing with that. Uh, plus throwing wigs on the Brooklyn Bridge and the Chiefs winning the Super Bowl. Uh, we get into all of it. She's a lot of fun, really down to earth, very honest. It was a fun episode. Hope you guys enjoy it. That's what she said. 
Super excited to welcome Heidi Gardner to the show. Uh, anyone who listens regularly uh, already knows my obsession with Saturday Night Live. So I'm just, you know, methodically making my way through anyone and everyone that is associated with and has ever been on the program and picking their brains for what is uh, ultimately, I think, the, mo- the most cool job that anyone has ever had. Um, and Heidi has been crushing it and making herself uh, a- a sort of um, these massively known characters that feel indispensable in just such a short time. So, so fun to have you on. I want to go back to the beginning because your story of getting to SNL is fascinating and not at all uh, the norm. You're from Kansas City, Missouri. Um, tell me about being just a kid in an all-girls school and and were you into drama right away or, or acting or were you more sportsy? I was more sportsy. I entered high school planning on trying out for the basketball team, but... I had a crush on a guy who did theater at the all boys school down the road and basketball tryouts were the same day as the tryouts for the play Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. And something in my warped 14 year old mind was like, yeah, you're good at basketball. Go try out for the play. Um, <laughs> you've never acted. You certainly not that it's Shakespeare, but I don't know. It's English. And, um, and for some reason, I remember telling my dad that, like, I'm not going to try out for basketball. And he was like, what are you thinking? But he didn't stop me. I wish he would have. Um, went, tried out for the play, definitely didn't get in it. And then, like, missed out on basketball tryouts. So that kind of ended my basketball career. And I was good. So I'm bummed about that. Um, but then... I, yeah, and I never did any sort of theater again. I was just always obsessed with movies, comedy, SNL, pop culture, going to concerts, like, but I didn't know living in Missouri, like, I just wasn't, like, in the, like, children's theater world of Missouri, so there's no, there was no path for me. I was just like, I guess I'm going to be obsessed with quoting movies my whole life or... (laughs) Yeah. yeah, it's interesting how the people around you and like the society around you and wherever you grow up really f- like fosters that or leads you to believe like this is a thing you can be really into but not do as a job. Because that was the same for me. I would walk around quoting Eddie Murphy Delirious or the best of SNL Eddie Murphy and like be re- like really invested. I would read, you know, David Letterman's autobiography, but there was no part of the people around me that were like, oh, so do you want to do X or Y or this is a career you can have. Um, so it's interesting the obsessions that like later on come out. Um, but it took you a while and that's the most interesting part. But interestingly enough, your high school yearbook, you were voted senior year's person most likely to be on Saturday Night Live. So you need to explain to me how you get from didn't get into the play to being someone that people clearly saw as this, this comedian and performer or entertainer. So we always had, uh, we had a talent show every year and we also had these like school assemblies. And I think word spread, especially like with the upperclassmen, like, Hey, that freshman or that sophomore girl is funny. I remember these two girls, um, Margaret Gordon and Sarah Truitt, used to stop me in the halls. They were like cool seniors. And they're like, do the Jim Carrey, um, like dance from Dumb and Dumber, you know? And I would just like act like a clown, you know? And it started like spreading through the upperclassmen. Like she was funny. So they would like ask me to like do a sketch with them. 
in uh, the talent show, like one time with like a senior and a junior, we did a scene from Waiting for Guffman. And um, yeah, so that. Wait, who were you? I just watched that movie because of Fred Willard's passing. I just watched it a couple days ago. I know we did a penny for your thoughts. And (laughs) I think I was the Parker Posey. I could see that for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So that was kind of. That's how it happened. So I would always, I remember playing like Carson Daly hosting TRL in a school assembly once. And I think I was Jeff Probst doing Survivor. You know, we do these sketches. And yeah, so that's how it spread. That's great. I love that you're just a couple years younger than me too, because a lot of times when I'm talking to the people who are newer to the cast, they're like, their references are completely different than mine, but you're sitting in that, in that sweet spot of all the stuff. Um, yeah. Okay. So, what did you make of being at an all girls school? Because obviously you really had to go out of your way to go find the guys, i.e. like audition for something across, the, across the city. <laughs> but yeah. did you feel like it fostered that? Because there is something very, I don't know, quaint about these older girls coming and finding you to perform and do funny things for them that I don't know if a school full of boys would have ruined that. Yeah, no way. I mean, I was so unaware of boys or how to be cool in front of boys um anyways that I I remember actually the summer before going into high school a friend of mine was like hey uh we're gonna go to the mall and meet boys this weekend so dress appropriately and I showed up to to meet her in the parking lot in a white turtleneck and oversized Anthony Hardaway Orlando Magic jersey (laughs) wide leg jeans um and dog tags and she was like I guess we're not meeting boys. Um, so when I went to the all girls school, it was like, I don't know. I, it just, I suddenly I was just like comfortable and I never thought about going to school with guys again. I think because yeah, you just, you just get really comfortable and, and you're not like putting on makeup. Yeah. You know, you're just kind of, yeah, there's an opportunity to be yourself um, a little bit more without that pressure at that age, I think. Yeah, for um, sure. Yeah, so that was nice. So you end up going to the University of Kansas. What was the plan at that time? Or what did you think I'm going to go to school and learn and become? Man, I really didn't know. I had two of my best friends we're going there. And I was like, I guess I want to keep hanging out with them. So I'll go there. Uh, even though like my family could barely afford private school and we lived in Missouri, KU is Kansas on the Kansas side. So like we also couldn't even afford out of state tuition, but I was like, you know, I will really take college seriously. And then I didn't know what I wanted to do because I, you know, same. It was like, I like movies. So I took like one of those film classes at KU, which they do have a good film department. Um, you know, I, for a second, I was like, I might be a director. And then I, 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 I don't want to give myself the credit of, I read a book about directing. I like perused it at Barnes and Noble and like just the section on lighting alone was like, no, um, so then I I took some classes in the theater and film department there and it was like designing costumes and, and there was some like experimental theater. I remember somebody like 
doing kind of a nude performance in like a locker room. And I was like, that's also not what I want to do. I don't know what I want to do. Um, and I just kept on kind of wasting money, <laughs> not knowing. Yeah. It's funny. It's actually a through line for a lot of the very successful creative and performer types is this like veering away from whatever the path is that everybody else is taking. And I, I read, you know, about your experience in college that you even figured out how to take a class in movies and you still didn't go, even though like the class just required going at 6 p.m. to watch a cool movie. And you're still like, I'm going to blow that up. <laughs> yeah, that's like the dream. I, you know, I remember reading about that class and with my like only two other friends, you know, we were just like, a class that is just watching movies. This was built for us. We're so lucky. And then like cut to a movie that's like just a little over our heads and like three and a half hours long. And we're like, I'm not going never again. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe you weren't cut out for the school stuff. Um, I, before we move on from, uh, Kansas and, and, and going to Missouri, you worked at Steak and Shake and the movie theater. Yes. What did we learn and take away from these important life experiences? I mean, probably the most uncool part of my life. I would clock in for my steak and shake uh, shift at like 10 a.m. in a black bow tie. No, wait, a red bow tie. <laughs> and then I would get off work like around five, drive over to the Southman 12 movie theaters all I had to do was switch out my bow tie to a black bow tie, get behind that concession stand, um, serve popcorn all night. So, I mean, I was like a grease ball, like hamburger grease, popcorn grease. Um, I'm trying to think, I mean, the movie theater, I can give you like, yeah, that was cool because I was around movies and I was meeting people with similar interests. I don't know that I learned anything from steak and shake um maybe other just than like drink because i would have a thousand oreo milkshakes a day if i worked at steak and shake i mean that's... yeah and that people like actually do tip pennies sometimes i mean like <laughs> it was bleak my brutal tip. yeah brutal pennies oh man <laughs> um okay so you decide to leave kansas and you go to university of missouri for a semester why did you transfer was it a belief that you know, it was the school itself that wasn't fostering your, your inspiration. No, again, it was like this lost, I'm just going to like do what my friends are doing. Cause I don't know what I'm doing. My best friend at KU, she had transferred to Loyola. And so I was a little bit like, like I'm the one. Um, and then I was like, Oh, but I had those like five friends at MU. <laughs> so I'll transfer. I mean, it was, I was lost. Um, extremely lost I so yeah I I went to MU you know I got in some like art classes at that point I was like I'm creative I mean I can make I was good at making collages um but not like real art and so those classes were over my head um and I was also working at like a, basically a payday loan place because I was trying to make money I you know it was just bad you strike me as someone who isn't super shy or like you, I'm, I'm surprised to hear that you didn't have a gaggle of friends. Why do you think that was? So I, I have become less shy. I do think I would associate myself with shy. I had a lot of friends. Um, well, okay. 
good point. Like I had, <laughs> I had friends, um, that I guess I met intimately. Yes. Like I wasn't like the person that could go into a party and make five new friends. Cause I just like, just so vulnerable to like be yourself, especially when you're aware. I did feel like there was something different about me, like whether it be my humor or my interests, um, which was usually the thing that made people like me, but it was like too much of a risk for me to like go straight into a party and give that part of myself. Cause it was just like, Oh, if I get a bad response, I'm <laughs> done. Yeah. There's a big swing on, let me try out this Chris Farley impression at the college party and see if people are into it. Yes. Um, so you leave university of Missouri and you decide that you are interested in hairstyling, but because you're unsure about whether like becoming a cosmetologist or a hairdresser sounds good enough, you want to fully dive in and move to LA to pursue that. Tell me about like that mindset of I'm lost, but I'm going to like fully move across the country to invest in yet the newest thing that I've decided. Well, I'll tell you about it because I finally understand what it was. Um, it was just shame. I, which <laughs> until like two years ago, I did not know the definition of shame. Um, like, but it was just shame based thinking. Like I'm, I, I'm lost at school. I'm going to drop out. I think I'm kind of good at hair because I'm like cutting my friend's hair for free. Okay. I'm going to pursue hair. Um, but oh my God, like saying that I'm dropping out of school sounds so bad. Like even, so I have to make the hair thing sound better. So I, oh, oh, moving to LA to do hair. Like that's legit. Like that is cool. Um, okay. So I'm going to say that I'm dropping out of school to pursue hair and makeup and I'm moving to LA to do it. So it was just this whole, like, so lost. So like kind of just uh, ashamed of myself, like, but I didn't know it then. It was just like, and so I just made this giant move. Um, I spent that summer in Kansas City saving money, which I also didn't save like any money. I saved like $300 to move to LA. Um, yeah, I was just so unaware and young and, but yeah, but then I, but I did it. I moved there. <laughs> and you were a hairdresser for nine years, which is yeah. crazy. That's a full career. That's mm -hmm. not a, like, I tried it and then I figured out I like comedy instead. That's a, I'm a successful hairdresser in a salon who has many clients and who has established mm -hmm. herself. And then it was just one client that became a friend who was like, hey, you're pretty funny for a hairdresser. Maybe you should, you know, do something with that. That's really it. Yeah. Well, it was, um, so it was, she did become a client, but my husband was writing on the show Robot Chicken, and one of the guys he was writing with was a member of the Groundlings Theater, and we became friends with him and his girlfriend, and she was also a Groundling, and she was like, hey, come to uh, see an improv show at the Groundlings. Uh, it was on, on a Thursday night, and so we went and saw the improv show, and I remember being like, that... I mean, and I'd heard of the Groundlings, but I was like, that was the funniest thing I've ever seen and like most entertaining. And so I was just like, uh, compliments, compliments, compliments to them. And they're like, well, if you want, we're doing a sketch show this Saturday night. She's like, I mean, it's two hours long. It's like SNL, but you know, here at the Groundlings, but it's a bunch of different sketches. 
So uh, I was like, yeah, no, I'm, I'm fully obsessed with seeing these shows now. So we go to that show. And at that time, Melissa McCarthy was still in the groundlings and oh, wow. Zeb and I saw her perform and like at intermission, we were like, why isn't that woman the most famous person in the world? And then two months later, Bridesmaids came out and it was okay. like, oh, okay, yep. the world makes sense. Yeah. Um, you guys were on top of that. <laughs> yeah. So then after, after seeing those shows, my friend Rachel was like, why don't you take a class? And I was like, no. And I told my husband, I was like, Rachel said I should take a class. And he's like, babe, I've been waiting for you to say this for a few years now. And then even my brother, I called him and I was like, I think I might take this improv class for the Groundlings. He was like, Heidi, I've been waiting for you to say this basically our whole life. I will pay for your classes. Like, yeah. Why didn't any of these people tell you this when you were lost? They waited till till you figured it out yourself. (laughs) Yeah. It's like, and I hear them talk about it now. Like my husband was like, yeah, you know, I, 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 she would do these things. And I was like, that's one of the funniest things I've ever seen. But he was like, but she's a hairdresser. Like (laughs) yeah, he just, he also couldn't translate. Right. So I didn't realize you'd met. So your, your husband, Zeb Wells, he's a a comic book writer, right? For Marvel. And then does uh, some other, you know, comedy animation stuff including the show that you are cooch the cat on that's his one of his projects right yeah yeah so you actually met him when you were a hairdresser not in the entertainment world yeah i met him on the set of like uh his friend was shooting like an xbox spec commercial which is like a fake commercial for your reel um Mm -hmm. just so you can show people you have skills and i but i was fresh off the boat in la and i was like I answered this out on Craigslist that said we need a makeup and hairstylist for an Xbox spec commercial. And I ignored the spec part. I was just like, <laughs> I'll just apply for this Xbox commercial. I get it. Um, I'm like, okay. I immediately booked a job. This is working out. I'm doing Xbox hair and makeup, which Xbox is video games. What was I even right. like? Whatever. Right. <laughs> um, and then I got to the set and I was like, this does not look legit at all. This looks <laughs> shitty um, and <laughs> collegey. Um, and it was, they were shooting it at the house that my husband was living at with like 17 other dudes. And, um, and yeah, I slowly, I was like unraveling, like this isn't real, is it? You know? <laughs> That's usually how it starts, though. I remember one of my first auditions. I was so excited to get some part in this like indie movie, and then I got there. I was like, "Oh, this is shitty. This no yeah. one's ever going to see this. This is terrible." No. And I'm not even right for the part. Why did they? Have <laughs> no one else yeah. auditioned for this. Um, okay, so you end up getting into the Groundlings, which is amazing and so fun. But what's incredible to me, and you know, also you know, massive FOMO as someone who went through the whole Second City in LA and wished that a million people had said, "Oh, you should have always been doing this. You're a man." magical and amazing is that you started after bridesmaids was out, which means that this for you has been such a quick turnaround for you to be like, okay, I'll give this a shot to, Oh good. I'm on the most famous sketch show of all time. Um, tell me how that goes, like getting to the groundlings and working your way up to becoming, you know, a regular player and part of the cast. And then uh, obviously getting spotted by Lauren and company. Yeah, it was this really amazing, uh, unbelievable time in my life where yeah I took that first 
improv class, which at Groundlings, you can take like the first two workshops, which are like improv workshop A and B, or you can audition right into basic, um, which most actors do because they have like some sort of listening and acting skills. But I was like, no way. I've never acted. I'm going to take these first two workshops, which are legit, just like sweet people who kind of have social anxiety, which I definitely did, um, who are just kind of like looking for life skills. Um, and as I was taking those, I was like, oh, this is really fun. And not only is it fun on a comedy level, but I do think I'm like listening better in actual life. And I think I'm um, becoming a little less shy and I'm saying uh, sorry a lot less. I, mm. I've got that Midwestern and female thing where I, I was just always like, sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And in improv, one of the first things they teach you is like, shit is going to fly out of your mouth. That is stupid. Do not stop the scene and say you're sorry. Like, and so that was just like a revelation for me. Like, I don't have to say sorry all the time. Um, so I take those. I feel confident enough to audition into basic. And then at the groundlings, you just, you know, you keep on moving up the levels and they are pass fail. But what was cool is I didn't totally understand like what, other than just like signing up for more classes and paying money to t- take comedy <laughs> classes. I didn't understand like that you get into the Sunday company and on the Sunday company, you perform, if you get in, you perform a new sketch show every Sunday night where you write, uh, you and your, um, company write the sketches and it's new every week. And it, when you're in that company, you're getting judged to actually become a groundling in the main company. I still didn't understand that. Um, so I was just taking these classes, just genuinely kind of just following my bliss. Like, this is fun. This is fun. And I remember there was another student one time that was like, um, what are, what are your goals here? And I was like, um, I don't know. I really like taking the classes and going to see the shows. And he was like, well, have you ever gone to see the Sunday company? And I was like, yeah, that's the one I don't understand. Like, what is that? And he was like, that, uh, like, that's what you should be trying for. Um, so after you take a few or a lot of improv classes there, they start teaching you more about character. They teach you about sketch writing and the classes start focusing in that way. And then, yeah, um, that it got a little more serious for me. Like I got into Sunday company and it was taking up it. I mean, it's, a full-time commitment. I mean, you're writing, you're buying your wigs and your costumes and you're meeting up with other people to write sketches. Like it's just 24 seven rehearsing, putting on the show on Sunday night. And I was still doing hair. And I remember, so I'm doing all this sketch comedy for free and spending a lot of money doing it. And then I have clients that are like, I'd like to pay you to do my hair, to do my roots and my um, cut or my extensions or whatever. And I remember being like, oh, I have to write a free sketch, <laughs> you know, like, and so it was at that point where I was like, oh, my focus has totally changed and it's not really fair. I mean, cause you got to take care seriously when you're doing it. It's yeah. not fair to be annoyed trying out a new color on someone. So I, uh, I mean, I totally blindsided my clients too. They were not aware at all that I was like 
pursuing comedy on the side. So one day I was just like, hey, I'm leaving the salon. And they're like, okay, well, if it's less than 10 miles, I'll follow you to your next salon. I'm like, no, I'm I'm actually going to do comedy. And they were like, don't become the stereotype of like, you moved to LA to do hair and you made it. Like, don't, don't do the acting thing. Like, we hate that. Um, so they were, they were not supportive and rightly so. Cause I mean, it just came out of nowhere. Um, but then, yeah, I did the, got through the Sunday company, made it into the Groundlings main company. And because I didn't have a job, um, when I first got into the main company, I just kept doing show after show after show. So in a year and a half, I, I just had a lot of characters that either made it into main shows or that I just tried out in previews uh, that didn't work or maybe a little bit of it worked. So the summer of 2017, when SNL came around, um, I just felt like, Oh man, I've got good momentum right now. Like I've been, performing nonstop for a while and developing characters like this is this is the right time and so I did a showcase at Groundlings and then a week later they said we want you to come out to New York and test and they're like you can you can do the same thing you did at the showcase for Groundlings so I felt good because I had already kind of tested that and it worked um so I did that first audition um I you always like, you know, you sound like you're SNL obsessed. Like you hear about people getting the meeting, like everything right. I read about is like, if you get the meeting, it's a good sign. And it was just silence. And I flew home the next day and then a week and I heard nothing. A week later, I got a call that was like, they want you to come back. You have to do a totally new audition. Um, so I was like, Oh no, I like did all my like, <laughs> my starters and that, you know, so I, um, I consider my second audition. It's like very special to me. Cause I feel like I used like my bench, like my, right. my B league of characters that maybe didn't work in a sketch, but like, you know, there was something in the character. Um, so I do that. I mean it, I don't know how it goes. Cause you know, you're in your head and you know, I picked myself apart for sure. I don't get a meeting again. I know that other people are getting meetings. Like we all stay in the same hotel and people are coming back from 30 rock. And I'm like dragging my suitcase to, to the taxi to go to the airport. And I like, I even vulnerably asked someone, I was like, did you get a meeting? And they were like, um, yeah, how was yours? And I was like, I didn't get one. Um, and then I go home. I hear nothing for 10 days. Um, there's nothing my husband can do or say to console me. And then, um, 10 days later, I'm in the parking lot of a Gelson's grocery store about to go buy some cereal. And uh, I get a call that's like uh, a New York number and I answer and it's like, Heidi Gardner, I've got Lauren Michaels on the phone for you. And I tried to put, play it cool. And I was like, uh, yes, put me through. And they're like, <laughs> Oh, okay. Um, and then it was Lauren and he was like, I'm calling to let you know I'm bringing you onto the cast. Oh my gosh. I'm like getting yeah. chills just listening to it. It's like <laughs> unbelievable. So how long did you have to turn things around and get out to, to New York and find a place and all that? Two days. 
Oh, cool. That's good <laughs> enough. That's enough time. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, you know, they're very kind and, uh, put you up in a hotel while you're looking for an apartment and all that stuff. And, uh, so yeah, it was a, but it was, it was just a huge life transition. Yeah. Well, and yeah. so then your husband presumably stayed out in LA to, to keep working on his projects. So that's yeah. tough. Yeah. Yeah. That, that is hard. I mean, he considers the, even the like finding out like that, um, that I got SNL, like my husband considers it like the coolest trauma ever, but it's definitely (laughs) trauma. Like even those like first few days of like, I couldn't tell anybody, you know, but you're, you're letting like close family know. And even, and you're, you're calling like your family members. And this is like, the best news in the world, but we're all dealing with emotions that we've never had. And like, and just to hear like the different reactions of people, like my mom, who's like so passionate. I mean, for her, she kind of played it cool. And then like my little brother was like a giggling mess. Like um, it was just, it was like too much stimulation. And so I think like those first few months, even with a long distance was just like, whoa, like life is so different, but we didn't even really want to admit it. I think my husband and I were just trying to play it cool. And even like a year later, he was like, yeah, your life is different now. And it's kind of intimidating. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a real fear. I think anytime there is a change in the patterns or, or, or even in who you were when you first fell in love and got into a relationship, the idea of one half of that partnership just blowing up and living somewhere else and having a different schedule and having all these experiences and relationships that he's not privy to just by virtue of not being there is obviously something that you can't really plan for. You just like dive in and then clearly in two days have to figure everything out. Um, yeah. So what was it like when you actually started um, putting together shows because that's the other thing you hear the most about is the nerves and the stress of like, it's one of those jobs where you have the job and yet every day you have to reprove that you belong and that you should be included, which is so stressful, I would imagine. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's also the thing that like, I mean, I strive to get to that place where I listen to like alums from SNL when they're like, no, it's, it's not about, like proving yourself every time, like when you can just get in that gear of being your authentic self and like not, not caring. And like, that's when it's going to feel, um, yeah, then it's easy. And it's like, God, but every, yeah, every week, I mean, from the start, I think, um, I'm too, I'm so much of like a people pleaser in life that I was able to talk myself out of the nerves of being on, live TV in front of millions of people by being like, well, you're on live TV in front of millions of people. So you better say your lines and you better do do it because they're watching and you have to, I mean, (laughs) that was, uh, that was my only way of like talking to myself into even saying words. Um, so yeah. And then every, every week it's, it's a little different. I always get, I kind of get nerves up. At, yeah, it's the same thing. It's like I get nerves up until like the camera's on. And then I'm like, well, I got, I, I've got no other choice. Right. <laughs> I, have to, I have to perform for you. So 
I don't know, once you see that red light, it's actually kind of soothing. It's like, oh, finally, the moment that you keep that you're scared of is here. And it's and not as scary. Right. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because you hear from people that you would not expect at all. Guys like Bill Hader, who years after he leaves SNL talks about how even the sort of um, physical movements of some of his characters weren't scripted. They were him hiding the, the Stefan putting his hands over his face was about him having like anxiety attacks midway through a performance. You read about that and it totally makes sense. And then you also read about someone who's like, yeah, I don't even think about how many people are watching. I'm just doing my thing. And that totally makes sense too. So I would imagine a lot of performers show up and aren't even really sure what kind of person they are until the lights turn on and something goes wrong or something goes great. And then you kind of yeah. get into that groove. Yeah, I remember listening. It was like armchair expert that Bill Hader was on, and it, and he was sharing all that, and I was just like, I, you seem like the most confident man alive <laughs> yeah. when you perform. I, I had no idea that you had racing thoughts and racing anxieties, and um, it was, it was. I, I felt so seen and soothed <laughs> when I heard that. Um, and th- but then there's someone like Keenan who. I mean, it just seems like, and, and I know for sure, like, is, is just comfortable. Like, like just knows exactly what to do to put himself at ease and to put the audience at ease. And I mean, that's the most beautiful gift when you see a performer that like just makes you feel safe. You're like, yes. Absolutely. All right. I want to do a couple of little speed rounds on the SNL stuff. So who's been your favorite host to work with so far? Ooh, um, Charles Barkley. Oh, nice. Well, yeah, you're a huge sports fan. (laughs) So um, Charles is such a good dude, just a real genuine person. Like all you you ever hear about him once you get to know him as a friend is totally true. Uh, What would you do if LeBron James hosted? Because I heard you're obsessed. Dude, I have thought about that (laughs) so much. It's like, yes, I want to play it cool. I just don't know if I could. Like he is hero level status. I, I, I just don't, I, I don't know. It's actually too risky. <laughs> yeah. I mean, to be honest, Space Jam's going to be coming out next year, I think. I and it, that's definitely, I mean, unless the pandemic slows down taping and it gets delayed, but either way, like you're probably going to be on the cast when he comes on to host and promote it. I know. And it like scares me that I love him too much. I'm like, I'm going to try to, I'm going to try too hard. It's right. It's going to be a good week for me. That's, <laughs> that's the like biggest fear. Actually, do you know, so actually my husband just had Katie Rich on his podcast. Oh yeah. Awesome. Yeah. And she literally was like, I never want to meet Stephen Colbert because if he doesn't think I'm like the smartest and greatest person alive, it's going to ruin me. And that's kind of what I'm hearing from you now on the Katie Rich, by the way, uh, a former SNL writer. But, um, I, I feel like that's what that's, that's your feeling of like that whole week, instead of being joyful, you would just be like in your head. Yes. So, but I still, but don't get me wrong. I want it more than anything. (laughs) (laughs) So that was me. My next question, your dream host and musical guest. Okay. So yes, LeBron is my dream host, but I also have a couple more. I would love Catherine O'Hara to host. Oh, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And either Leonardo DiCaprio or Brad Pitt, because I think that there, especially in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Leonardo DiCaprio was so funny. And I just, (laughs) there's something, I mean, he's such a good actor. I just think he would kill it. 
Um, dream musical guest. One of my favorite bands ever is The Strokes. Uh, so that that would be my my pick. Very cool. I feel like there's yeah. I feel like The Strokes plus either Leo or Brad would be a very cool combination. That just feels That's right. Cool. Yeah. Um, <laughs> who's your favorite character to play? Uh, probably, uh, Bailey Gizmer on update for a very similar, like Bill Hader, Stefan way. I, that character, I feel like I can completely hide in. I mean, the way she plays with her hair, the way, like there's something about it that plays into my anxieties that makes it a lot easier. Yeah. Like her, her way of being is, is inherently nervous. And so yeah. if you are feeling that, then you're just making the character even more that instead of it, instead of yeah. interrupting the character. Uh, do you have a favorite SNL character from somebody else of all time? Of all time. Um, yeah. Oh my God. There's so many. Um, I mean, Chris Farley, Matt Foley, so good. Um, Sherry O'Terry and Molly Shannon doing anything basically. Um, when Eddie Murphy played uh, James Brown in the like hot yep. tub, yep. It was so good. Adam Sandler and David Spade and Chris Farley playing the Gap Girls. <laughs> I, I mean, and then um, Wayne and Garth. Like, yeah, yeah. There's just too many. There's so many. Yeah, um, because I, and then also everything Kristen Wiig and Maya Rudolph do. Yes, they could just smile, and I'm and I'm in i'm in yeah same goes for amy amy and tina if you put them together yeah like anything there's too many there's too many there's too many um i'm curious let's say something happens in the in the public sphere and there's going to be a sketch about it is it clear to everybody on staff like oh well this is a heidi character or this is a whoever or is are there little quick auditions where you have to put together an accent or a vibe or a, a, a character portrayal and then they decide yeah i Gosh, I feel like that's kind of with um, writers and producers. That's a that's an obvious, yeah. For, like that people are like, oh, that's a this person, that's a that person. Right. Um, so yeah, I haven't run into a lot of those. It's just um, whoever's writing that sketch will say, All right. Heidi, you're doing this, you're doing this. Like, it's not a choice. Yeah. It's like, okay. Cause I'm, I'm fascinated by someone, for instance, like Melissa McCarthy, who you go see at the groundlings. You're like, how is she not the most famous person ever? And then you ended up being in the movie life of the party with her, which I'm sure was like a thrill and sort of a weird, how am I here with this person after all this? But also like yeah. when, when they do something like Alec Baldwin as Trump or Melissa McCarthy as Sean Spicer. Melissa McCarthy as Sean Spicer is this brilliant thing that if you ever said it without actually seeing it in action, you'd be like, what? And then it was unbelievably perfect. Um, yeah. Something like that. What's the process there? Are you aware of it at all? Or do they just show up one day and tell you, guys, Melissa McCarthy's going to be Sean Spicer? <laughs> like, Yeah, we're, we're kind of barely aware of it. So we kind of find out always like, on the Friday night, the night before, which is sometimes when, like, from what I've heard, like, that's when, like, um, Matt Damon finds out he's going to play Kavanaugh. Like, he's in L.A., it's midnight on a Friday night, and he's like, okay. And then he's jumping on a plane, and, you know, there's barely any time. They do, you know, like, during our rehearsals, it's like we run through a sketch once before dress rehearsal. Like, so these people who are playing these huge cameos are I'm I'm always in shock by 
how much they nail it with so little time, yeah. so little rehearsal. Um, yeah, but it is like a last minute thing. And so it's always fun to see like last season, we had no idea Elizabeth Warren was going to be there. That truly yeah. was. Um, that was insane. That was yeah, so 20 great. minutes before I was like, <laughs> Oh, that's the special. I kept on hearing them say guest to the floor guest, you know? And I was like, who is it? And then I walk out and I'm like, Oh my God. That's crazy that it turns around that fast. Yeah. And there's such just clever turns, whether that's, you know, Kate and, and Elizabeth together or something like Brad Pitt being Fauci because Fauci had jokingly said Brad Pitt would play him in a movie. Like it's just, and what a wonderful, incredible gift for the show that it's big enough and famous enough and beloved enough that you can just be like, okay, well, we should get Brad Pitt then. And then he shows up like there's it's impossible to be cool enough that like you just get an idea. And almost all the time, that person's just going to show up and be like, OK, I'm in. It's just unbelievable. Um, I have to ask about the at home shows because I actually thought from the start they were really well done. I thought the second half of the first one was even better than the top in terms of a lot of the sketches, the quirky, weird ones. I was like, oh, no, I'm in on this weird stuff that they put later in the show. Um, I'm also obsessed with uh, middle aged mutant ninja turtles. I thought that was just so funny um but even the later ones and the most recent the last episode of at home everything hit it was just so good you guys really found your groove um how difficult was it when they or how exciting when they call up and they're like all right we're gonna get back to work and like was it just go figure something out on your own was it pair up with a writer and do something how did it work yeah the first week was a little uh jarring because i feel like you had just started um, getting used to the new norm of quarantine. Like, okay, I guess I'm just in my apartment. And I'm, I, I had just gotten used to like, all right, I'm just chilling. Like I had a couple of those days where I was like, it's okay to do nothing. <laughs> yeah, this is nice. And I'm like, you know, reading these like Buddhist books and have a total morning routine. And then you get the, called it's like hey we're doing SNL this weekend um and so then you bring that trauma and stress into your own safe space yeah like it was shocking um the first week I did my character Bailey Gizmer and I I do I write that with um two of the writers uh Sudi Green and Fran Gillespie and Sudi lives in Brooklyn and her and I met on the Williamsburg Bridge six feet apart and she threw me two wigs that might work you know like it was so it was so crazy that that's how we're doing things and and how blessed we are like every week that we have this amazing team who does all of that for you um but yeah the first week was like it was just like a sweat fest like trying to make my room into bailey gizmert's room which was actually fun because that felt very groundling Sunday company asked when totally. I had to do everything. A physical collage but, even. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was, um, it was really cool. But I remember I shot that right before going into like a table read, a zoom table read. And I was like, so sweaty. Um, and, uh, and then, yeah, by the second, by the second SNL show, it felt uh, less intimidating, but also I feel like the show, and you can see it in that second episode, like really just upped the whole look of it. So, right. you know, they're sending us like cameras and ring lights and mics and green screens. And so then that's a whole thing for people that aren't used to using green screens. 
Um, so every moment of it was um, exhilaratingly bad and good, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. hard. I think all of us are like, oh, cool. Now I'm hair and makeup and lighting and technology. And oh, good. They're sending me another thing. So I have a return on the TVU unit that's connected to the ring light. That's it's, it's too much. Yes. For, but yeah, it's interesting, too, that they did lean into it by the second one where they did stuff like uh, what up with that. And there's just the absurd graphics and like the weird yeah. where the stuff with like 80 being at her house and like she's kind of imagining and it fills with imaginary friends that are like weird perverts and sim characters. Yeah. They just kind of were like, all right, let's make it weird because we're we're and part of that is the audience, too, has to change that their expectation of what they're watching from this is SNL, but they're just at home, but it should be exactly the same as normal to, okay, they're at home and this is totally different and this is enjoyable in a different way, which is really yeah. cool to be able to do and to like flex into. That's tough to do uh, yeah. and impressive. Um, I know we're running out of time, so I got a quick hit. Like you're obsessed with the Royals and the Chiefs beyond your LeBron James obsession. So that Super Bowl run, unbelievable. Tell me about how it was for you. Oh my God. I, I mean... I couldn't ask for a better playoffs and at the same time never want to go, go through that again. Like, I mean, the first game against the Texans when we were down 24-0, like, I, this is going to make it seem like I abandoned my team, but I didn't. Um, once, once the Texans went up 14-0 when they blocked our punt, ran it in the end zone, I was watching with my husband and I immediately, um, got in the shower. I like I had to like just change up something. Um and I was sitting, you know, naked as you are in your shower, just chanting for the Chiefs. Like I was still with them. I was just trying to like change the mood. So I was like and I was just trying to do what, what I always hear Patrick Mahomes say, which I was just like one play at a time, just be yourselves, one play at a time, just be yourselves, just chanting in the shower. And also so scared to get out because I was like what if it's not different? Like, what if my chanting um, in the shower didn't work? And I get out of the shower and I look and it's 21 and I'm like, okay, that didn't work at all. Um, and then some friends came and dropped us off a couple breakfast burritos and they said, we're going to stay and watch like the second quarter and everything changed. So then I was begging them. I was like, please keep watching yeah, the that. Yeah, more burritos. Um, yes. And so, I mean, that is one of the best football games ever. And then cut to the game uh, against the Titans. Again, we're down. And then the Super Bowl, we're down. Like, I mean, I am, oh my, it's like such stress, but then like such amazing uh, celebration and victory. Um, I threw a Super Bowl party here in New York and I was so lucky my brother and my sister-in-law and a couple of their friends from Kansas City happened to be in town. And my best friend, one of my best friends from back home lives out here. So to be able to be with, like, family from Kansas City and then, like, friends from SNL came and were just, like, rooting for the Chiefs for me. <laughs> and to have those worlds collide and, oh, I've now I know what it's like. It's the best feeling in the world <laughs> to win the Super Bowl. It really is. And right around that time, J.J. Watt was on the show. So you had like all your sports things connecting all around. I know. Time. And it took me like a second to ease into telling him I was from Kansas City because the loss was so fresh. So yeah, that's the, the, 
Yeah. I <laughs> eased into it by saying like, well, I love barbecue cause I'm from Kansas city. <laughs> and, um, he was like, Oh, so you must be really happy right now. And I was like, yeah, man, I'm sorry. <laughs> but he was the sweetest, nicest, awesome dude. Yeah. <laughs> I was actually at the Super Bowl. I did a story about the Chiefs running backs coach. And so I became friends with his family and ended up taking his birth mom that he found years into life. When he was 45, he went and found his birth mom. And I wrote a story about it. Ended up taking her to the Super Bowl. And it was like the coolest thing, how emotional she got watching them win. And we went to the after party with the team. And like, it was, they're kind of like my adopt. I'm a, I'm a Bears fan. So I'm sticking with the Bears, but the Chiefs are my adopted second team. So it was a really cool run to, to have them you know, oh, all the way. That's and, amazing. Yeah. Um, all right. So before I let you go, you have to do the one thing that everybody does and nobody expects. I didn't expect a kind of Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. It's the Spanish Inquisition. Question number one, what's your Desert Island album? You can only have one. Oh, man. Um, um, I would say... I would say The Strokes' first album. Nice. Hard to explain, yeah. Uh, to what habit or quality do you think has contributed most to your success? Um, hard work. That's good. That's good. <laughs> you don't have to be so uh, concerned about it. I think that's a good I answer. Know. Um, number three, what would you consider your biggest failure? Mm. Um... Biggest failure. I don't know. Trying out for that play. And <laughs> out of high school. And not, well, not, not trying out for the basketball team. I was yeah. really good. I could have been on the WNBA maybe. Yeah. And now look at you. What a waste. <laughs> yeah. uh, number four. Have you ever been in a fist fight? No. Number five. If you could switch lives with anyone for a day, who would it be? Oh my God. Um, Alicia Silverstone, like when they were shooting Clueless and when she was shooting the Aerosmith videos. That was like peak Alicia. That Aer yeah. Aerosmith videos with Liv Tyler, like how much did you just want to be as cool as them? Yeah. Like when she had that closet in Clueless that moved around on the remote. That was amazing. Ugh. Um, number six, what was the most, the most embarrassed you've ever been? Oh my God. When I worked at, um, Steak and Shake, I served a guy that I, uh, had a crush on in my English class and all of his friends. And I dumped, there was nine guys and I had nine milkshakes and I tripped and I fell and I had nine milkshakes on me. That's perfect. <laughs> and I was in that bow tie. So. Yeah. So super hot just from the yep. start. <laughs> um, number seven, what's the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve? Mm. Um, like self-love how hard I am on myself yeah that's a good one <laughs> that's a good one you should work on that um <laughs> number eight if you could play the commissioner of life for a day what one rule would you enforce that all of society would have to adhere to Ooh, um hmm. uh, you know what like Give cats a break. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just sick of people saying that cats are mean, cats suck. Just people have to be born accepting cats and dogs. Like, people have to love cats as much as dogs. There's no cat people or dog people. Right, no people. competition. 
just love them all. Okay. I can get behind that for sure. I mean, dogs are much better, but if there's no competition, (laughs) then we can just love them all. I'm cool with that. Um, Number nine, what's the most scared you've ever been? Oh my God. Um, I mean, probably those Chiefs playoff games. (laughs) Like really terrifying. (laughs) Yeah. Um, and finally, what three words would you most hope that people would use to describe you? Um, funny, um, funny, genuine, and original. Oh, those are good. I like those for sure. Uh, bonus question. Who should I have on this podcast who would be interesting to talk to? Ooh. Who should you have on the podcast? I mean, can I say one of my castmates? Of course. Ego Wodum. I met Ego when I came to uh, the Emma Thompson show. Uh, and actually, we had a mutual friend randomly. So we were hanging out at the after party. And she seems like just the most effortlessly cool person. She is. And she effortlessly makes you cooler and better. Like by being near her. (laughs) Yes. And so I just feel like, honestly, you sound cool. I don't think you need to get cooler, but I do think it could happen if you have her on the show. Okay. I am always willing to be more cool by the people that I place around me. So if I could be ego adjacent, I'm going to make it happen. Um, All right. Thanks so much. See you later. Thank you. Well, that's what she said. It's time once again for South Bitch Sessions, where I rant about something that bothers me and I fix it. This week, cheap flip-flops and lesson. I know, you know, you get what you pay for. If you spend, I don't know what it was, like $6 and you get a pair of flip-flops so that the two pairs of flip-flops amount to $3 each, which is $1.50 per shoe, then the expectation should not be high. But I happen to be wearing aforementioned cheap flip-flops en route to film something in a location, my first time out of the house filming it, I got a mask on, I'm like really nervous, and before I can even get out of the car to go to the place, the flop breaks. So now I'm trying to like shove it back into the hole just to like drag it along. Meanwhile, we get a lunch break, I try to go Whole Foods, and I'm like dragging the flop around the store, trying not to touch anyone or anything, and socially distance while I've got this flat tire. One day if I snap, it's probably going to be about this because there's no warning when the flip-flop is going to go. You, it's not like a shoe where you kind of recognize that it's, you know, the wear and tear has come to a come to a head and that you might lose it soon. This thing just blows with no warning. So I'm dragging it around. Some random guy at Whole Foods like, we sell shoes, you know. But I've only got like an hour left in this flip-flop before I can go home to my million other pairs of flip-flops. So maybe if you're going to make them, at least make them good enough to wear a minimum of 20 times because this was the second time I wore this particular cheap flip-flop. And again, you get what you pay for, but like, why would you even make a shoe for a dollar fifty? Why would I buy it? I guess is part of the problem. All right, I feel good about what we accomplished today. I'm going to spend no less than five dollars per shoe on my future flip flop purchases, and uh, I demand better. Is all I'm asking of the flip flop industry. There, I fixed it. If you got a dilemma for the commission to fix, tweet it to me at Sarah Spain or go to the iTunes or podcast app, subscribe, rate and review and leave the dilemma in your review. Maybe I'll fix it on a future episode. Thanks as always for lasting about an hour with me. That's what she said. 